Good morning. Happy fall break. And go Vols. I'm excited about our passage today. If you have a Bible, we're going to be in Revelation 7. It's going to paint a real beautiful picture for us if we have eyes to see it. And uh, if you're fast, we'll be in Ephesians 2 a little bit. But Revelation 7, I think, is going to be helpful for you and for me. While you're turning there, it, I had to do math earlier in my head. But it was about 16 years ago when me and my bride um, started considering, just even in small talk, just considering what it would look like to plant a church. Um, we had already been a part of two church plants, uh, a part of the core team, once as a campus director, the second as an executive pastor, um, but never to lead one, never to just cut one out of the grounds, just us and a core team. Um, but we, we started that quite a, quite a while back in during that time, this was before we knew that Knoxville would be our landing place and our home forever. This was before we even knew that the name of the church would be Legacy. Um, I was midway through a book uh, that was kind of making its rounds through the church crowd. Uh, that book was now it's 17 years old, written by a guy named Dan Kimball, and the title of it was They Like Jesus But Not the Church, which was about it, exactly what it sounds like it was about. It was kind of a cultural analysis of this trend it was starting to become evident for the first time. It's a trend I'd been noticing there in Tampa Bay, which was a denial of the local church as a part of God's best plan for his people. All the scary statistics you hear me rattle off from the stage from time to time, they didn't exist back then. They were just being formed for the very first time back then. But it was clear to everybody that the church was shrinking. Now, we would speculate on why that was happening. No one really knew why that was happening, and some people said it wasn't happening at all. But one thing, if you had eyes to see, is that the church was starting to not so much look like the place you wanted to go if you wanted to find Jesus, or friendship, for that matter. Not just Jesus, but just community. So back then, we knew that when we did plan a church, uh, wherever it would be, with whoever would come with us, it was going to need to be radically different than the churches that we had been a part of planting in the past. And that's because society was radically shifting right in front of us. Now, unbeknownst to us as a planting team, the, the families that came with us here to plant this, there was also a conversation happening in the church world um, basically over the same things. And it was a movement called the emergent church or the emerging church. Some of you have heard those phrases tossed around. They were having a similar conversation, but it was a, it was a little unique in the fact of, yes, the church needs to radically change, but how much does it need to radically change? What exactly are we radically changing in order to reach a people that are just really no longer interested in, in being a part of this anymore? And so one of the things you saw in this grander conversation was a lot of babies being thrown out with the bathwater. They were, as a movement, pushing over some kind of sacred cows that needed to be pushed over. Some things needed to go away. And some things not so helpful that they were pushing over. But whether you liked what they were doing or did not, they were thinking some of the same things we were thinking. And that was we need to change because there is this extreme de-churching movement that we're seeing. I was not shocked even then or am I shocked now to see people avoid the church when they are far from God. But there was this noticeable trend that people that were in the church were avoiding the local church. People who would call themselves Christians were doing what we would call de-churching. And over the last 25 years, 
40 million people have stopped attending a regular church service on Sunday mornings. 40 million people. That's a lot. Ryan Burge, who's a professor of political science at Eastern Illinois State, he says it's the largest shift in religiosity in America over the last 200 years. There's actually more people who left religion than joined religion during the First Great Awakening, the Second Great Awakening, and all of the Billy Graham Crusades combined, just to put it into context, the seismic shift that's happening right in front of us. And this makes sense, because we're also witnessing this triple exodus happening now that we couldn't even see 10 years ago, and that is more pastors are leaving the ministry now than ever before in American history. It's happening, and it's happening fast. I have a long list of men that I used to serve as peers, that we were planting churches at the same time, leading churches at the same time. They're all gone. We're actually seeing churches close faster now than ever before in American history. And we're, we're starting to see this thing called denominational erosion, which is a fancy way of saying that all the denominations you can think of are starting to shrink. And this is all across the board. In fact, some of them are precipitously falling to the point where in 50 years, they're probably not going to be around anymore. They're just going to be a, something in a history book. Now, COVID has become the boogeyman that we all point at and say, that's what did it. It was the pandemic that did this. I don't think that's being very honest, though. These are trends that have been in motion for three decades, for quite a while. We're just now starting to see what it looks like after so much time. So this is the conclusion after being in the ministry for 25 years, seeing all the statistics, and that is this. It takes a lot of hope and trust that the local church is the best way to grow spiritually, doesn't it? It takes a lot of hope and trust to think that a local church setting is the best, most fruitful way to grow spiritually. It's just too easy to like Jesus and not the church. It's too easy. 40 million people agree with that. 40 million people ask the question, why risk just the damage, the inconvenience? Why risk being disappointed? Why invest my Sunday mornings, my Sunday nights, my money? Why invest something into that? They don't have an answer for that. 40 million people. Listen, Lana Del Rey does not either. If you don't know who that is, it means you don't have teenage girls. But Lana Del Rey is a singer. She's been around for a while. So if you don't know who she is, she is semi-popular. She was interviewed not too long ago, and this is what she says. My understanding of God has come from my own personal experience. I don't know about congregating once a week in a church and all that, but when I heard there is a divine power you can call on, I did. I suppose my approach to religion is like my approach to music. I take what I want and I leave the rest. That's a fair voice from the 40 million. Listen, I think Legacy Church has the coolest people in the metro area. I'm just going to say that. I get it. I'm partial. I think you're cool. I think you're awesome people, right? I think that we have done enough and we will do more. That it's just going to leave a big significant impact on this area. That's what I think. In fact, I don't even think we've hit our stride yet, <laughs> honestly. But as cool as we are, how many of you have thought about dechurching? It's okay to at least be honest in your own head. How many of you thought about it? Maybe even this morning. Why risk it? Why bother this thing called the local church? How close are you to joining the 40 million? Probably not far. You see, we're, we're at a pivot point in our creed right now. 
up to this point in the Apostles' Creed, we've been looking at what I would call vertical truths, right? Um, that God is a father, that Jesus is the begotten son, that there was a gospel, that there was an atonement, that there is a Holy Spirit. These are all vertical truths, but they have horizontal implications. And that's what we're starting to see now as we move forward throughout the creed. And today we look at the place that says, I believe in the Catholic Church, the communion of the saints. And at that point, some of you wonder if we're becoming Catholic, right? And we're not. Nor are we becoming Anglican or anything like that. Catholic is just an old school way of saying universal. This creed was written long before the Protestant Reformation. There was no Roman Catholic Church even when this was put together, this Apostles' Creed. What it means when it says universal or Catholic Church is all believers across time and space. All believers. We actually see a picture of this in Revelation 7. So if you have a Bible, we're going to jump in at verse 9, and we're only going to read a couple verses in this. It says this, John writes in Revelation 7, verse 9, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, and palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. This is a picture of the universal church. Now, Jonathan Lehman, who's a prolific writer when it comes to the church, both universal and local, this is what he has to say about the difference between the two. The universal church is a heavenly assembly of everyone, past, present, and future, who belongs to Christ's new covenant and kingdom. Now, a local church is a mutually affirming group of new covenant members and kingdom citizens identified by regularly gathering together in Jesus' name through preaching the gospel and celebrating the ordinances, which we would call communion and baptism, right? You and I are in a universal church, Right? If you are in Christ, if, if you call Jesus Lord and you are covered by the blood of Christ, if you are a Christian, you are a part of something much bigger. You are part of a universal church with people that live in lands that you don't even know how to pronounce the names of the countries. You'd have to parachute to get in and you wouldn't be able to understand what they're saying because they're clicking their tongues and that's not what you call language. You'd have to take a canoe to get to work. They dress weird. They have weird cultures. They eat weird foods. And their brother and sister to you and to me. I find this fascinating, the universal church. Just thinking about how, it, how it, the scope of it covers everyone, everywhere. Now, Mark and Sherry Lewis are not here today. They're on the road. But I don't know if you know this, but Mark talked Thai. Mark knows how to talk Thai. And I didn't know this until I walked in on him once and I caught him. Now, he doesn't flex this often. He doesn't flaunt it out that he knows how to do this. But I walked in and he was speaking with somebody on the phone that he had grown churches with in Thailand. And I'm like, what is he saying? That is awesome. And he hung up the phone. And I'm like, listen, you're like a spy. You know how to speak different languages. Do it again. Do it again. Say something in Thai real quick, you know. I was fascinated with this. But it gave me just this glimpse of a moment that, man, this is really cool. I have brothers and sisters in Christ in Thailand. They don't even know my name. I'll never even meet some of them the brother and sister. Me and Sean Angel and Dr. Clint went to Haiti a few years ago. And part of that trip, 
we sat in on a church service. I didn't understand a word. The guy's preaching in Creole, right? I don't even know. I couldn't tell you anything about Creole. I could tell you I heard the word hallelujah a few times, though. And it just reminded me, man, these are my brothers and sisters in the Lord. I love it. It's fascinating. And not only does the Catholic Universal Church go across all space, it goes across all time. Which means in the end of all ends, there will be a banqueting table where you have Lydia, who is one of Paul's first converts, right? Probably what we would call a com group host. One of Paul's first converts sitting across the table from Tim Keller and Abraham Lincoln. You'll have Martin Luther King shaking the hand of Martin Luther. You'll have these beautiful moments where we will see with our own eyes that it doesn't just expand across space, but time as well. Now, why does this matter for us today? It's important for you to know that you were adopted into something much bigger than just latitude and longitude. This speck of land here in East Tennessee in this one year of our Lord. You're more than just a point on a timeline and a point on the map. We are involved in something far bigger. I always find that inspiring and encouraging. The author of Hebrews would call this a cloud of witnesses. In Hebrews 12, he says this, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight. Cloud of witnesses here. If you were to really drill down on the language, it's not a cloud like what we would see up in the sky where you could see the edges. This is a cloud without edges, more of like a mist or a fog. So big is this cloud of who? People. Witnesses. Right? Now, what's interesting about this is in America, this is, this is for free. This is a side trail. What we've typically done is we've imagined this to be a cloud of witnesses that are cheering us on as we finish the race, right? That's how we read it. I'm finishing the race. I'm working really hard. All of my friends and family, and I guess Peter and Paul and John, they're up there and they have a jersey on with my name on it and a foam finger, and they're cheering me on as I finish this race. That's not what's happening here, okay? These are witnesses for sure. They're not witnessing your fantastic works. They're witnessing God's his majesty, his limitless glory. That's, the, that's what they're witnessing. In one day, and this is the beauty of it, our witness will join the chorus that's been mid-stanza for eons. We'll be a part of this cloud. I love it. The Bible's really cool. All of this sounds great. Doesn't all of this sound great? That our place in this cloud our place in this universal church is secure by what God has done, but, but it cannot remain an abstract idea. It can't just hang out in the ether. This is what Jonathan Lehman goes on to say. He says, the local church is a visible earthly outpost of the heavenly assembly. He's talking about Revelation 7 there. It is a time machine which has come from the future offering a preview of this end time assembly. Legacy Church is a time machine, right? Of sorts. Because we represent what God is doing and what will be done as we read it in Revelation 7. Listen, if the church is real, it exists today. It shows up on earth in real time, in real space, with real people, with real bad breath, people you didn't handpick, People who are going to annoy you, who are going to show up late to things, people who are going to step on your toes, people who are going to admonish you, encourage you, laugh with you, high five with you, cry with you, grow with you, disciple you, be discipled by you, 
a real people, a real place. Local churches display the universal church. We give evidence of Revelation 7. Now, if you've been through our partnership class here, I usually talk about the difference between being membered in a church and being partnered in a church. This is where we get this language. I always say I would never argue with another church pastor or another staff about the fact that they use the word member and we use the word partner. I don't really care that much about it, but there are pragmatic reasons we do it and there are theological reasons we do it. And this would be the theological reason. My friends in Thailand, my friends in Canada, my friends in Dallas, who are brothers and sisters in the Lord that I've never even met, they are members of the same body. Why? Because God adopted them into the family, right? So we are part of the same family. But that doesn't mean we're all part of the same local tribe, right? That would be partnership. And, and, and even partnership is a beautiful thing, but it's got a problem, right? There's a big problem with partnership in the local church. And that is that we are very good at stepping on toes. Very good at stepping on feelings. We don't mind being membered in this ethereal cloud of witnesses. We don't mind that because Paul doesn't really annoy us that bad. And David is, King David's rarely late to something to get on our nerves very much. But the local partnership, well, there's friction there, right? There's going to be sand in the gears. It seems just more trouble than not. And I think 40 million people have already agreed with that. It's just too much trouble. It's just too easy to divorce the local church over irreconcilable differences. I mean, have you ever had your toe stepped on in the local church? Ever have that happen to you? You either have or you're lying, right? Just wait, it will. I mean, we'll just make it legacy church. Let me just say this, legacy church will fail you. I'll make it even more personal, I'm gonna fail you. I'm gonna fail you, repeatedly probably. The longer you know me, the more I'll fail you. I'm gonna forget your middle kid's name. I'm gonna do it, right? It's going to take me six days to return a text. That's just going to happen. I'm going to have a, a night or two or ten of bad sleep, and I'm going to say something really stupid, real thoughtless. I'll see you at Trader Joe's. I'll be looking right at you, and I, I'm looking right through you. I don't even know you're there because I'm out of my mind, and I'm at Trader Joe's, right? This is all going to happen. So let me just do this. I want to pre-apologize for all the times that I will leave a dent on you. I am pre-sorry. I am pre-sorry for failing you. But I don't just want to pre-apologize for myself, but for everyone else in the room. Look across the room. You will be damaged. You will be dented. Others will fail you as well. They'll step on your toes by accident, or hear me clearly, they'll do it on purpose. And still, this is God's best idea for you and your spiritual growth. This is God's good idea for you and for me. Man, the church was built by God as a trinity. This church was built by God the Father who had this beautiful, creative, architectural idea for what would glorify him most on earth. And then Christ, with the joy in him and who was excited to come and and basically pull us all together by the very blood that he shed on the cross as he came to live and die and live again very victoriously and then send a helper to what? Help us learn how to handle each other, work with each other, grow alongside each other. 
This church is God's idea, and it's beautiful. But it's a beautiful mess at the very same time. Chuck Colson, he had this famous saying that the church, the local church, is a lot like Noah's Ark. (laughs) And the fact that it could get kind of smelly inside of it, and, and the smell would be almost unbearable if it wasn't for how bad the storm was outside. I find there to be some truth in that. But sometimes we can't bring ourselves to deal with the stench inside the ark anymore. And I will say after 25 years, which is not a long time in the ministry, but it is a decent enough time in the ministry, I've seen two what I'd call mega themes of how people disconnect and then eventually de-church from the local church. All right, two. And one of them is hostility. Hostility. We all have this impulse in us. We all do to put up a dividing wall and and some sort of a a way of making a distinction between us and other people. You are either with us or against us. You're either on that team or you are on this team. And we've we've done this with many things. Now, political differences are mostly camouflaged before, um, I'd say, March of 2020. And they were greatly camouflaged before social media. It would have been really difficult to just kind of know what somebody believed um, politically or ideologically, it would have been kind of muddled a little bit. Not so anymore, right? Now you're either with us or you're against us. Mask, no mask. Those were the days, weren't they? Vaccine, no vaccine. Republican or Democrat. Public school, homeschool, or other, right? The person next to you, they, they might believe differently than you do on climate change. Guns. Columbus Day or Indigenous People Day, whatever. I mean, there's a million things that can cause friction between you and me and you and the person next to you. And how many times have you been in a room, maybe this room, maybe a living room, and you've heard somebody else talk, right? They just kind of start riffing. And then you've thought to yourself, I didn't know they believed that. Has that ever happened to you? I mean, they look just, I mean, they look normal. (laughs) They look normal and they believe that? I mean, that guy drives a van like I do. We were at the Vols game together, and he said, how can you, and then this is where it turns into, how can you be a Christian and vote that way? How can you even be a Christian and be against the science? How can you even be a Christian? Fill in the blank. There's a million things. Haven't we said that in our mind? By the way, this is the number one leading reason fatigue pastors stated for leaving the ministry. It's the fault lines that developed over time It was just dividing the church into a million different pieces. And yeah, we had them here. And yeah, they make me tired. And no, I'm not looking forward to the next election cycle, which will all come right back up to the surface. But there's something that we do as people when we try to fix these walls without Jesus. We usually try to fix things without Jesus before we try to fix them with Jesus. And how we've done this is we find people that are like us, and then we build new walls. So we're still going to connect with people but they're going to need to be people that are a lot like us, our own tribes, and then we're going to build a bunker. But this is what this is. That's not really community. That's affinity. That's affinity. It's not diversity. Not at all. Now, what we say when we want diversity, and we say this a lot as a church, I hear people say it all the time, and I think sometimes they know what they're asking and what they're saying, and sometimes they just don't, right? But usually when people say, I want a diverse church, or legacy should be diverse, or all the churches in Knoxville should be diverse, typically what they're saying is, is I want a church that is 22% black, 
16% Hispanic, 5% Asian, and 1% Islander, right? And, and we'll sprinkle in some impoverished people, a couple college students, and some Auburn fans, right? And we'll call it a day. That's diversity. As long as they believe what I believe, though. As long as they vote like I vote. As long as they sound like I sound. As long as they believe the same things and check the same boxes I do. But we're not really looking for diversity to the way that we think we are. This is one reason so many people out of the 40 million have stated that they've left the local church. Is visibly, they don't see diversity. But I think it's a ruse. I think it's a ruse. This is what Kevin DeYoung said in a book that he wrote many years before Dan Kimball's book. He says this, They wish the church could be more diverse, but then leave to meet in a coffee shop with other well-educated 30-somethings who are into film festivals, NPR, and carbon offsets. I cannot read that without chuckling <laughs> because it says film festivals. Listen, if you love film festivals, we could still be friends, but barely. But Jesus, right? So we could still be friends, but that's just funny to me. But do you see how we do this? How we're really good at building walls around our own affinity groups? Now, one thing we've tried to do to make that hard on you and what other churches have done to make this hard on people is we've pressed you into living rooms, tighter proximity. Because you could kind of believe whatever you want right here and no one really knows. You could carry whatever set of opinions you want into a room like this. No one's really gonna know what's going on. But when you are eating chips and salsa with a few families, and somebody pulls the pin on that old conversation grenade and throws it into the middle of the room, now you know. And you say to yourself, I didn't know they believed that. How can they be a Christian? How can I do life with them? Right? That's one way. That's one way we do this. Another way, another mega theme, and this will be the only other one I talk about, is busyness. How busy we have found ourselves. We've all seen the movies or the television show where there's a rocket or a jet that's moving so fast, it's like glowing on the outside, everything's shaking on the inside, and pieces start kind of flying off of it, right? That's the American life, isn't it? Isn't that the American life? Just flying so fast, we can barely keep it together. I mean, our, our families are exhausted. We're in such deep energy debt from lack of margin in our life. That's me included, by the way. And I will tell you, I'm healthiest. I find myself healthiest when I practice what I call slowing disciplines. Just spiritual disciplines that are made to slow me down. Where I remind myself before the Lord that I'm finite. I'm not omnipotent. I'm not omnipresent. But I'm just finite. I'm just a guy. That, that here, I can't have everything I want. I can't do everything I want to do. But I'm anchored right here in this time and this space, by God's brilliance, and I'm going to just see what he has in front of me. This is always helpful for me. I think it will be helpful for you as well, because listen, you live a life of trade-offs. I don't know if you know that. For everything you say yes to, you are inadvertently saying no to something else, right? It doesn't feel like it in the moment, but you are. You're saying no to something else. This is what the word decide means. The last part of that word decide just means to cut off, just to shave off, to push aside. So we're not really adding things to our lives. That's what we say to ourselves. I'm adding some stuff. You're not. You're substituting things, right? Because that's the only way, because we're finite creatures. 
And as we zoom along as fast as we can, glowing on the outside, stuff flapping off the family, we're looking for deep connection, yet we've traded away that very precious margin and space. We need to build that very same connection. It's gone. We're too busy. We don't have time. Don't have time to have people over. We'd love to have a beer with somebody. Got no time. Love to do some campfire moments with somebody. Don't have time. Love to hang out and watch a game. Don't have time. Love to just have coffee in the mornings and really get real with somebody. Don't have time. We're moving at the speed of light. Last December, I did something that is real important to me. I usually put it at the end of every year where I map out all of my responsibilities, obligations, right? Teams that I'm on, boards I might sit on, positions I hold, and I look at them and I kind of squint my eyes and I put my values up there and I say, which, which, this is really who I'm supposed to be. This is really how I'm supposed to be spending my time. Does it reflect my very values? Why do I do this? Because I'm just like you and I'm always asked to do more. And there are always good things, fun things, big opportunities. So I have a rule. Every year I'm allowed to say yes to new things, but I have to make yes expensive. For every time I say yes to something, I have to shut down three other things, right? That'll make it real fast. It's a grueling process to simplify everything like that, but it's liberating at the same time. Friend, listen, every opportunity you see before you, ask yourself, what am I willing to give up to do that? What is it that needs to go? What are you willing to sacrifice to do that one thing? Because that's really what we're talking about. Now, this is why it's important in a, in a message on communion of the universal saints, right? Because if you're not making a priority out of the space you need to build deep connection, you'll never have deep connection. If you never build it and guard it and practice it, you, you might be in attendance, but you'll always feel disconnected. You'll never have what you're looking for. I mean, isn't it interesting that some of our deep relationships came out of high school and college? Think about that. If not you, then the people around you. Why is that? Lots of margin. Lots of just stupid time doing nothing around each other. Time spent moving in the same direction. But listen, eventually Ferris Bueller's got to grow up, right? And get the minivan and the 3-2 and start piling away money for retirement. And it just gets hard. I've told people in the past, and sometimes this shows up in a partnership class, listen, I cannot, as a pastor, as an elder in this church, I cannot promise you best friends here. I can't. What I can promise is that we've worked really hard as a staff and as an elder team to build space for friendship to happen. That we can do, which is why our calendar is not bloated with a million different things, with a million different logos going in a million different directions. We need to put less plays in the playbook to build space in your life to where you have time to do life deeply with other people. You know, in our partnership class, I usually also spend a little bit of a time talking about why we cannot build this type of deep, authentic community here on Sunday mornings. It can't happen here. Small talk can happen here. And listen, small talk is real. It's valuable, right? That's a totally different sermon, but there's, there's deep value in small talk, believe it or not. It's not wasted. But you cannot build trust and vulnerability in the 9.5 minutes 
here before and after a service when your kids are melting down and they promise you that for every minute you do not take them to Chipotle, they increase attitude and volume, right? You can't connect, you can't. Nobody says, hey, so tell me how, how you're seeing the Lord move in your life this week. That doesn't happen before and after. Small talk does, but that doesn't, right? You see, in, in the Bible, in the New Testament, really, there are 59 moments 59, where you and I are instructed on how to handle each other. People call it the one another's. Some churches will do a whole series on each of them. How, how we are supposed to admonish one another, exhort one another, be hospitable to one another, encourage one another, stir one another up. There's 59 moments of that in the Bible. Here's, here's the truth. You cannot do this on the edges of a service, those one another's. A service where we're, we're only able to make it 78% of the time. You, you can't do it. It's impossible. Attendance does not mean community. You, you can be here and be here often and still be disconnected. Or any church often and be disconnected at the same time. You see, it's just not natural for us to build margin in our life, for us to build this kind of space. I think we knew how to do it when we were kids. We just lost the muscle memory over time. Things just got too busy. The ship started to glow things started to fly off of it. Friend, it's possible for you to have a ton of friends, but not really, right? It's possible for a lot of people to know you and for no one to know you. A failure to connect is one of the biggest reasons people de-church, not from just one church to the next, but just done with it all. A failure to connect. I think some of us today might be on the brink of that. Whether, whether you're Considering de-churching from legacy or another church, I think a lot of people are just barely hanging on. But let me ask you, whether it's you or you watching online, how hard have you worked? How much elbow grease have you put into building space for deep community to happen and guarding that space and practicing that space, knowing ahead of time it's going to take one, two, three, four years sometimes for something meaningful to develop? It doesn't happen on accident. Or are you just too busy? These are hard questions, but I want to go back to the conclusion I drew earlier. It just takes a lot of hope and trust that the local church is the best way to spiritually grow. Doesn't it? Just a lot. And I'm, honestly, if God never promised that it was possible, if God never promised that it would be beautiful, I wouldn't believe it. I wouldn't believe it. I'd be part of the 40 million. Right? But this is how we know it does work. Look at Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2 is the gospel remedy for everything that we're talking about right now. I'm going to jump in verse 13. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. It might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Okay, 
we see a couple things here. One is that hostility between us and God has been ended by Christ. He tore the wall down. There was a wall. He took it down. Tore, tore the veil that separated us from the presence of God. That's one thing. But we also see that we used to be strangers, orphans. We were strangers with ourselves. <laughs> strangers with, with the people around us. Strangers with God. Just strangers roaming. And now we're not. We weren't even a people before God. We weren't even a people. This is what Peter says. He says, you once, at one time, you were not a people. But now, you were God's people. This is what the gospel does. It's not ever going to be on our strength, our awesome coolness, our innovation that makes this work. The blood of Christ makes this work. That's what makes this work. So, with that being said, de-churching is just gospel forgetfulness. It's actually anti-gospel to de-church, to say that, God, you were good, but I'm going to take what I want and leave the rest. That which you bled for, that which you thought through, I'm not buying. It's too hard. It's too hard. Even disconnecting is gospel forgetfulness. Church partnership. It's voluntary. Church partnership is voluntary insofar as God is not telling you to be a partner with this church instead of that church, right? But God does bind us to partnering with the people because that's how we express the reality of the gospel before a watching world. That's how we do it. There's so much gospel in Ephesians. One of the things we see as we read on, well, let's just read it. Look at verse 19. We'll just read it real quickly. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you were fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple. In him also you are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. What's cool about this is we're actually seeing two different structures represented in this passage. One is a household and the other is a temple. And those do two different things, or they kind of have different realities around them. The household is, is a, sense of, it's a sense of place of belonging. We have something that ties us together, our genetics, our last name. We, we are one together in the same household, but then the temple does something a little bit different. The temple is a place of awe and wonder because of the filling spirit of God, right? So they're, they're similar, but they're a little bit different. The household is beautiful because the church is the greatest example of cohesion in the world, even more than our families. Does that shock you? It, not in a lot of parts of the country, but in East Tennessee, that could be a little bit of a shocking statement that the church is the greatest emblem of cohesion in the world. Because, I mean, listen, some of your families, you don't, just, you don't really enjoy them as much as you navigate them, right? You navigate them. Hey, holidays are coming. Good luck with that, by the way. That's for free. Holidays are coming. Families don't always have a point of reference to rally around. The church does. We have Christ to tether us together to sanity to fruitfulness, to growth, to God's glory. Listen, I might not like who you vote for. You might hate the sound of my voice, but we have Jesus pulling us together. 
We have Christ who tore down a dividing wall of hostility so that you and I can tear down walls of hostility between us. So what does this mean? It means we disciple each other. You disciple me, I disciple you. And then we fight, you and me. And then we reconcile, right? And then I get on your nerves, and then you annoy me. And then we reconcile, right? And then I admonish you, and you encourage me, and we reconcile. One step after, long distance in the same direction next to each other, fighting, reconciling, fighting, reconciling. Why? Because the dividing wall of hostility that was torn down between us and Christ is torn down between you and me and you and the person next to you. But what we don't do is de-church because householding is too hard all of a sudden. How selfish. How selfish. The other element that we see is the temple. And this is really beautiful, and I think one of the best ways to think of the temple There is this theory, I actually think it's probably a little bit more fact than theory. It's called the cathedral ceiling theory. Some of you, you might know it without knowing it by name. And it is the theory that when you walk into an old cathedral, whether in Europe or here in the States somewhere, and you have the giant span above you, 70, 80 feet, and frescoes everywhere, and long stained glass windows, and it it feels very austere, it changes the way you feel and it changes the way you think, doesn't it? It slows you down for one thing, but you think creatively. You, you feel more connected to the past, connected to Christ. You, you think a little differently. And then studies have shown that it actually slows down some of our brain activity, allowing us to think on a totally different track than we do when we're in a room with eight-foot ceilings. Right? I mean, it's to the point where whenever I rent a cabin in the mountains, I won't rent it for, for overnight stay or for a short vacation unless it has vaulted ceilings. I won't do it because I just feel different in that room. I think differently. Right? I love hotels with giant, tall ceilings. I feel differently. It ignites this sense of awe and wonder in me. I think this is what God's people are supposed to evoke in the world. There's a missional application to this. I think when the world sees how we interact with each other as God's temple, it's supposed to think differently. Have awe and wonder over who God is, over what he has done. I think we're the temple. I mean, this isn't the temple. This isn't it. I mean, we got bats here. We got bats. Some of you are new. Occasionally, we'll have one or two bats come out, right? They're a little bit of mascots for us. They only do it once a year. I think we're good today. We've given them nicknames even. Uh, Bruce and Wayne. We're not really, but that would be cool. Maybe we should do that. But we have bats. And if we have a morning where the bats don't come out, we still have graffiti in the bathrooms, And dumb flyers on the wall for dumb stuff, right? This isn't the temple. You are. You are the temple. You are the temple. This is what Jesus says in John 13. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. The world is supposed to see you and say, wow, that guy, that guy must love Jesus or something. And it really changes the way I love or I think about Jesus or I even think about church. Because if I was that guy, I would have knocked that other dude out. What he said bugs me. But he didn't even kind of flinch. He just put his arm around him and forgave him. I would have put him on the ground. But he put his arm around him and forgave him. Man, God is just different. Or that gal, she's got big patience for her husband because he's an ape, right? And he just did that and said that, and she loves him. But I know that he's kind of young in the Lord, and I know that they're figuring things out. Man, God is good. 
That's what it's supposed to do. We're the temple. With God's spirit mixing and moving and changing us that the world would see it. We are an outpost of the heavenly assembly, a time machine showing what God's beautiful citizenry looks like so dramatically. That's who we are. That's how we are to be.